Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Tim Myers does a bit of everything. He's a writer, songwriter, storyteller, visual artist, and senior lecturer at Santa Clara University, where he teaches writing. We got together to talk about the nature of creativity, which Tim calls a sacred mystery, including everything from the way our childhood creativity is changed by the culture as we become adults, the necessary role of play in the creative process, the transcendent experiences of awe and wonder and how they fuel us, the wisdom of following your gut, and a whole lot more. The subject matter may be deep, but the conversation is lighthearted. I think you'll get a lot out of my conversation with Tim Myers. Tim, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Nancy, I am so delighted to be here and so grateful that you allowed me to be part of this whole thing. I think it's wonderful what you're doing with this. I think creativity is becoming, I think there's even greater awareness that is becoming more and more important in the modern world for lots of different reasons. So I think that the fact that you're doing this is really out there contributing in a major way. Uh, plus, I just think this is going to be a blast. Me too. So I start everybody off with the same question, which is, sure. were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? I absolutely was not a creative kid. I was a kid who was, well, it, it's funny because kids often, people sometimes stereotype kids, like people talk about children's imagination. They all have great imagination. Well, if you teach kids, they have the same human schmear as adults do. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a, a much greater open-mindedness and open-heartedness to it. So kids are, I think one reason adults often say this is because they miss that in themselves and mm -hmm. they feel it's underdeveloped in themselves or repressed. And when you see kids playing, they are so open, so into flow. They're like instantly into play flow. And they can be very creative in the way they play, although kids also play traditional games all the time. Um, so I was a kid in that same sense. Uh, I can remember things we did and talked about and I, things I wondered about. I can remember, again, I'm saying this is kind of like minor creativity that could happen to any kid. I can remember being really bored during class when I was in third and fourth grade. And the nuns up there talking. And I had this thing I would do in my head where I'd imagine firing a slingshot and it ricocheting off the room and, <laughs> and hitting the statue of the state of the saint and shattering that I was such a little heathen. Um, so I so I, there, there probably were signs in me at that time. But uh, what did happen to me, though, and I, there actually was a starting point for me, which actually, so in a way I answered incorrectly. So I was in sixth grade and uh, Sister Mary Boniface, I went to a Catholic school, as you can probably tell. Mm -hmm. Sister Mary Boniface was our teacher, very tall, very slender, with a slight German accent, Boniface. You know. And um, she, her mouth was a line. She never smiled. And so, of course, as kids, we just always assumed she was mean. Actually, looking back, I realized she was a very shy woman, right? Um, so she called me in after class one day. For some reason, she'd asked us to write a, an essay or something. You know, I'm 11. Uh, for school. And then for some reason, I wrote a poem. Now, <laughs> it was about St. Stephen the Martyr, the guy who got shot with all the arrows. So mm -hmm. and I was actually a pretty cheerful person, but <laughs> but I, I don't know why I did this, Nancy, and I turned it in. And the, then the day after, at recess time, I heard the words that every kid dreaded, which was, all right, boys and girls, it's time to go to recess. Tim, will you please come and talk to me? And I was just scared to death. 
Um, and I'm standing there, you know, little kid, and she's sitting at her desk, and she said, you know that poem you turned in? And I'm just like, oh, my God, did not follow directions, did not follow directions. <laughs> and she said, I, I still remember this. I kind of get the chills. She said, I liked it. You could have knocked me over with a feather. You know, I graduated high school in 71. I was born in 53. I'm not saying all parents were like this, but parents talking to kids, adults talking, actually talking to kids, that was not a common thing then. Parents and teachers talked at kids. Mm -hmm. So she was actually talking to me and she liked something I did and I had no idea why I'd done it. She encouraged me. So I started writing more poems. She put them in a little booklet. I just got a huge kick out of that. So she and I, you know, I have often thought I have, I never thanked her. I was too young to understand, but she set that free. You know, she opened that gate for me and then I kept on from there. So I guess, so I guess it is true that it happened when I was a kid, but even then I was very, very gradual and very slow to get into it over time. I was not uh, like, like my wife is one of those kids when she was a little kid, she was awake and aware and watching what was going on. And I was more like an apple on a tree, just like slowly ripening. And that's, yeah. And and then, you know, it picked up speed and intensity over time. How about, how about you? Were you a creative kid or were you a later? <laughs> I'm not sure if anybody's turned this question on me before. So well, it's um, such an interesting it question. Is, it's isn't a great it? question. Yeah. That's why I use it. But exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, I was writing stuff the the first thing I remember writing was a story when I was in fourth grade when my brother got the chicken pox and I wrote a story about it. Okay. So that's young. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, little things here and there. And and I think I think I was about probably four or five when my parents put me in my first children's choir, which is something oh. that I've never stopped doing. So Oh, how wonderful. So, yeah. So that that has always been a thread, though not for the last couple of years for various reasons. But um, one one day I shall go back. But yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's that's been a huge was a huge part of. I mean, that's choir is literally how I picked my my undergrad college. So yeah, know, yeah. yeah. I, I used to tell the kids what I was teaching. I was like, "Don't ask me how I picked my school." And especially if I tell you how I picked my school, don't go tell the college <laughs> guidance people how that I told you how I picked my school, because it's not how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but that's a this is wonderful though too, because I was going to say obviously, the way creativity arises in us um, has a lot to do with nature, but it also has a lot to do with nurture, and people in your life, and obviously it could be parents and it could be teachers surprisingly often it is not uh, and again not i'm not i'm not out here to judge all parents and all teachers i was a teacher educator for almost 20 years this is one of the things my wife and i it, my wife is a phd educator um and i learned 80 percent of what i know from her and we would always emphasize in working with our teacher candidates how much they need to put creativity into the curriculum and we had to emphasize this because that is not the default position Isn't it for most amazing? teachers. You, it's like, are you guys not reading the papers? Are you not seeing how these creative creativity gurus are making buku bucks by going? It's like this is something we should start preschool, obviously. But how wonderful that your parents would have you in a choir at age five. Why is a five-year-old not in a choir singing? 
That's yeah. that's fantastic. Well, and I think my dad started singing in choirs when he was that little. Okay. So well, there you go. You know, the torches passed on. Yeah. But you know, it, it. Yeah, and I think they did the same thing with my brother, though that one didn't take. But, right. It doesn't but, always take. But he's the one who can pick up any instrument and just start playing <laughs> it, and we just sit there going, "That's disgusting." But you still. <laughs> so maybe it took a little. It took in a different direction. Yeah. Well. I can tell you what happened to me. Um, as I told you before in emails, I'm really, really interested in songwriting. Well, in fact, I'm interested. I've been doing it for decades, and I've probably written over a thousand songs. And I'm working on a musical right now. And it's interesting that your your point about your brother. Uh, my mom. This it's funny because this fits with my earlier story, which happened when I was in sixth grade. And in seventh grade, my mom. By the way, I'm the oldest of eleven kids. My mom was overwhelmed. Yeah, And I, when I think back to this, I am so grateful to her for, because I mean, just keeping the house from exploding was a major accomplishment, <laughs> not to mention putting food on the table. She bought a, an old piano, an upright wooden piano, 75 bucks. I remember this. Uh, and she encouraged me to take piano lessons. So I'm a 12 year old boy. So this, I'm like, well, I don't know about this. And I took the lessons and it, this very sweet kind of vacuous older lady who had doilies on her tables. And I started, you know, with the, da, 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 da. Uh, the lessons lasted. Uh, I took about five of them, five weeks. And I, what I realized early on, <laughs> talk about pedagogy and how you should teach. If I didn't practice, I got a B. If I did practice, I got an A. So it, that was a pretty easy decision. So I stopped taking the lessons, but I had learned the structure of the, the three note chord, the one, three, five. And that's when I started songwriting. So like your brother, it's, it's this whole thing about creativity is such, at its heart, such a mystery. Mm-hmm. At its core, in my opinion, in my feeling, at its core, it is a sacred mystery. Oh, yeah. It, it is a divine gift, in my opinion. But it's also very weird, like a lot of divine things are. So that you never know what's going to spark what. So if, you know, again, parents, teachers, expose kids to these experiences early and not just, hey, who was the, give me the name of three classical composers, put instruments in their hands, put paintbrushes in their hands, take them outside where they can pile rocks together. You know, there's so many ways you can do this. You never know what's going to, you never know what's going to spark. Does your brother play regularly? He, he doesn't as much now that he's got kids. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and, you know, they're eight and 11 and they both play, they, they both take piano lessons. So Excellent. I think maybe that helped him kind of get back into it. And for a while, I don't yeah. think he had a piano, but, but he, yeah. he used to like the whole time that he was in high school and college, like I would come home, he's younger than I am. And I would come home like on, you know, fall break or something. He would spend hours in the basement at the piano. And and just as, as one example, he literally destroyed my copy of the vocal selections from Phantom of the Opera because he played it so much that the pages fell out. Okay. But he wouldn't just play it. He also listened to the CD constantly. So he'd figured out all the stuff that went in between. And he would sit down there and play for an hour or two and just play the whole thing straight through just for fun. 
You know, okay, he so- also played trumpet and now he plays guitar and harmonica. Like I said, he picks up stuff and just goes with it. Well, so, so but he's yeah. clearly, so this is another thing about this mystery of creativity. It's not only the mystery to me that these things exist in the natural world, either in, as actual manifestations like bird song or the the sound of waves coming on the shore. I mean, rhythms obviously uh, exist in nature constantly. Tones, not quite so much, but they're there too. But what the hell happened in this simian brain of ours that causes us to flip out in reaction to these things? Now, your brother needs to keep doing music. He needs to. I mean, when you, that level, he's, he was on fire. And that oh, fire yes, is was. not gone. Yeah. And, and again, I laugh because a huge part of my artistic life has been dictated by the fact that we had kids. Uh, you know, that makes a huge difference. Um, but I, I, when I think of that fervor and when I think of how utterly anti-practical it is, I mean, it's like he's spending hours in the basement playing this music over that he loves. Accomplishing what? Well, for God's sakes, accomplishing everything as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, wow. and and we had lots of conversations because I was very, I was very anti my parents' anti music degree idea with it because I was like, "Hi, what's he doing all day?" Right, you know, right, right. Yeah, and yeah. and he is an architect and he's very happy being an architect and so you know, right, he's right, he's right. got plenty of of places to put his creative energy. But right, but right. I just kept thinking, you know, because because my parents were very much of the. You don't do that as a profession. You do it as an avocation. And, and in a way, I get it because if you turn what you love into a profession and it doesn't go quite the right way, it ends right, up right. owning you instead of you owning it in ugly ways. Well put. And you can end up hating the thing that you loved and nobody right. wants that. But, you know, at the same time, I was like, double major. Come on, let him <laughs> Exactly. You know, but, but yeah, no, he, he's picked up the piano again and he's definitely, you know, lost some in the intervening years, but, but he still picks up and and plays. And and, and what is amazing is to watch him with, with my nephews, you know, who are still learning this stuff. And it's, it's kind of that, what was it you said? Sacred Sacred mystery. Sacred mystery. That's it. So it's it's exactly that because he he just is so tuned into that stuff yeah. that there was a moment when you know he was talking to the boys and he was like, "Well, you just pick this up and do it." And my sister and all and I immediately <laughs> like, "No, you just pick <laughs> it up and do it. It doesn't work that way for them." <laughs> That's right. You know, and and I know the same thing happens with me. I mean, I can't necessarily break down for you, like right. how I wrote a, a really good paragraph or something like that. I can tell you how to fix your bad paragraph, but I can't necessarily tell you what magic happened that that I I just know how to do it. You know, and and that's that I think is is part of that sacred mystery. It's like I I don't Absolutely. know, it just happens. So so yeah, and I I get why why people struggle with things like that. I also get why it's hard for us to forget with the stuff that comes so naturally to us that, right. yeah, right. we learned it once upon a time, but it just clicked more easily in our heads and we didn't have to work at it as easily or something. And so you got to remember, not everybody else had that happen with that thing. They probably have their own thing where they can do that 
but right, it's not right. necessarily your thing. So maybe go easy on people. That's right. It's hard to no, remember. And, and you know, this is a good example to me too of this wider, uh, not just importance, but crucial importance of creativity. Uh, there is a tendency to kind of ghettoize creativity with artists. I don't mean ghettoize in necessarily a bad sense, because a lot of people really admire that. Um, but what gets lost in that is the tremendous foundational amount of creativity that happens in the lives of all human beings, whether it's fully accepted or not. I mean, it's it's kind of there, it's there in potential. So these questions about education and creativity always come up. And I think they should come up because it's not just about, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's obvious as hell, but I'm all for more school funding for the arts. <laughs> and the, and you, I know you're more than familiar with all those arguments and how it does pay off. And there's all kinds of research now. Um, but it, But also as an educational principle across the board, having nothing to do with the arts, one of the best principles is, and again, having taught teachers for so long and haven't been a teacher so long myself, I tend to think in these pedagogical ways, right? Um, I, I will often say this to my writing students as well as to my teacher candidates that I had back then. If you had a basketball coach and he or she sat you down and said, okay, let's talk about physics. Let's talk about the laws of physics. The basketball is a sphere. It's moving in space. The movement, curving movement is covered by calculus. Or the, you, know, and all you would go, coach. This is all well and good, but what what are you talking about? Well, of course, the coach is exactly right in that every second of playing basketball is physics. Yep. But that coach would be, and of course, no coach would ever do this, is 100% wrong in terms of how to do basketball because it's experiential physics. Yeah. So the more we put students into doing situations, the better they get at artistic things and at non-artistic things. And part of that is a solution for those of us who teach creative writing or, or other forms of the arts is that we don't have to, because I'm, I'm totally with you, Nancy. I'm like, I can do so much for you as your creative writing teacher, but I can't teach you how to do creative writing. What I can teach you is how to approach it, some possibilities here, how to set up the circumstances in your own head. I can show you models. I can talk to you about how I did it. But even then, I mean, again, this all comes back to the sacred mystery. Why did I use that word? Well, I, I can tell you, I thought that word was great because it was a contrast with the previous, but how did I come up with that? I was watching a Sting video sometime back. He and another guy, I forget this other guy's name, he's been with Sting for years, a wonderful guitarist. And the interviewer was asking them about, you know, how do you write the song and how to write this song and everything. The phrase that kept coming, because they, they, they never, I've, I've watched a lot of these videos, they can never answer the question directly because there is no answer. And what they tend to say is, and Sting, who's by the way, very articulate, he kept saying, well, I was messing around with this. Oh, yeah, well, we were messing around that day while I was with Richard in the studio and we were messing around with this chord. And I'm like, messing around? <laughs> messing around is as good as we can do? And the answer is exactly yep. yes. It is as good as we can do. It's a form of play. Right. So the more we involve play in not only human recreation, but the more we involve play in actual normal practical skills, not to mention artistic skills, not to mention thinking, learning to be a better thinker, critical, the more people are allowed to play and encouraged to play with that, the better they get and the richer life is for everybody. And of course, like you said, it doesn't always work. When you mess around, nine out of 10 times you get crap. 
but the tenth time, right, right. And and you're reminding me of the example I, I read Keith Johnstone's book Impro back almost a year it. ago. It's it's like the the Bible of improv, basically. Oh, and oh, it's it's okay. it's not even that new. I think it came out in the seventies, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. But there's one example that he gives in there where, you know, somebody did a study with a group of, I think they were bankers or something like that, you know, mm. something that you don't think of as, as being much more than bean counting and had them do an exercise as themselves and rated what they came up with. And I think it was some kind of idea generation kind of thing. And then told them that they were going to role play being hippies and, you know, flower children and and whatever and do the same exercise. And when they were allowed to free up that way, the results improved dramatically, both in quantity and quality. And, And I think that's the same kind of thing. You know, it's like you're allowed suddenly to stop being the straight laced. I am very serious and I'm going to count all of the beans and and just have fun like you did when you were a kid you know when you were saying earlier people look at creative kids kind of like i miss that and i think you're right i think we yeah. we think we're not allowed to do that anymore and and culturally we we have not caught up with the idea that yeah actually playing and having fun is really good for you and it makes everything work better exactly but it does right and being behind the behind the curve culturally is this Big critical part of this. Um, one of the things that also drives me nuts about this is a lot of these aspects of play are dismissed automatically because they're associated with childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the degree to which they are gendered. I mean, that might be worth thinking about some more, but it seems to me that that domestic world, I mean, I, what I'm thinking about is that elementary school world, which traditionally has been children and women. Uh, that's changed some, but it still tends to be there. Are more women teachers there. That world where play is not only uh, accepted, but centered. Of course, not everybody in that world centers it, and some teachers don't get it and everything. But that whole thing is in direct contrast to the super important money-dealing male bankers. Yep. You know, so so again, there's this, this sense that this is serious and this is play. So uh, there's a great book by a uh, Dutch, I think he's a Dutch philosopher. Huygens is his name. It's called Homo Ludens. It's a super scholarly book. In fact, if you read it, you got to be ready for it. just that, the <laughs> philosophy. And it's an older book, right? It's, I mean, it's just so scholarly footnotes and everything, philosophy and everything. But his basic point, which he says in this most classic hierarchical language, is play permeates culture. Culture, culture, culture itself, he identifies with play. And when you think of that, you're like, well, yeah, what's the difference between chimpanzees and homo sapiens? Well, we play more. We, we go beyond the norm. I mean, chimps even do that a little. It seems to be an evolutionary capacity. But our, our whole thing is like, why would you wear a red shirt when you could wear a gray shirt? Well, that's play. There's right. something there that is, it doesn't have a practical, I mean, if you're a firefighter, maybe it has a practical benefit, but for most of it, it doesn't have a practical benefit. Why do we love music so much? Why do we love the arts? Uh, you know, we could, we could feed ourselves without great tastes and amazing recipes and all that. So this idea of play is still not having caught up and still being, you know, you're not serious. I just thought bankers and hippies. I mean, that's, that's yeah. perfect. 
Yeah, and there there are so, there's so much research coming out that confirms all of this. And it's it's like, you know, you kind of want to take out the billboard in Times Square and be like, look, exactly. look, please, please, can we do something with this? You know? We're not just a bunch of dumbasses over here. We're not just like hippie <laughs> dippies. We're actually, we're talking about stuff that is now, science is backing it up. Yeah. 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 But it's also, yeah. you know, I mean, we all thought that the, the way that work worked was going to change with the pandemic. And an awful lot of people are trying to put that genie back in the bottle. So that seems right. to be a cultural characteristic too. Like we know better, well, but no, we want it to stay the way it was because we know how that works. Well, so but you know, that's, that's the thing about <laughs> genies. As the stories tell you, when genies get out of bottles, they don't always get put no. back in. And something, and even when you get it back in, sometimes there's a little blue smoke floating around, you know, we'll see. Yeah. So I, listen, I've got to ask you, uh-huh. I, I think, I can't remember if I asked you this in email, but, and forgive me if I did, but how did you get interested in creativity to this level? I think what really did it is when I was teaching and I taught for eight years in a private school, the first two years I taught tech classes because my first jobs were in tech support. Yeah. And then I switched over because I said, I have this English degree. I'd kind of like to use it. <laughs> I switched over to teaching English as a second language. And yeah. when that happened, then, you know, I, I kind of became more of a full-fledged, real, a, a real live teacher. And right. they gave me advisories and stuff like that. And I became the advisor of the literary magazine. And this was also oh, around cool. the same time that I started writing again myself after not doing it for several years. So I was playing around with all of these things and I wanted my kids to play around with all of them. And also I had this lit mag I had to fill and where was I getting submissions? There was no creative writing course at the school. The closest thing. Are we talking about high school? High school, middle school. Okay. Yeah. So the closest thing was that the ninth graders would always write a short story after they did their short story unit. And when I started my MFA, I realized I actually kind of started laughing. No offense to anyone that I taught with, because I get why you do it this way. But, you know, they they would go through all of the traditional elements of the story, the setting and the theme and all of that kind of stuff. And that was what the kids were armed with to write a short story. And I'm sitting there going, that's not what you need to know to write a short story. The, the physics of <laughs> basketball. Yeah. It's the physics of yes, basketball again. exactly it. Because what I was doing in in my MFA was the, you know, complete different planet from all of that. But, you know, part of what I was encountering, too, was that people were convinced that ESL kids couldn't do creative writing. And I was like, what do you why? Why? Why do you think that? Do you think that they're like subhuman somehow? I mean, do they not speak their first language? Right, They're kids (laughs) and they have words and they have imaginations. And so it may not be perfect grammar, but so what? Oh, Oh, so maybe that was their problem is they thought it didn't make sense because the language difficulties. But I'm like, no, the motivational force alone is going to help them. Right. And and so I started doing creative writing units in my longer ESL classes because I'm also that kind of person who would look at people like that and go, oh, really? Let me prove oh, you really? wrong. Yeah, let me show you how wrong you are. And and so, like, probably, I don't know, 70% of the lit mag would end up being stuff that my kids had written in my class. Oh, that is so wonderful. Because that was what I was mostly getting. You know, because nobody would help me. I kept saying, how am I supposed to do this when they've got no feeder to give us stuff? 
And and from there, I decided to go get my MFA because I had felt like I had done what I could do with my writing on my own. And also I was hoping that it would give me the street cred that somebody would finally let me teach a creative writing class. Right. Didn't quite work out that way because there was this whole recession just as I finished my MFA and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, that, that was really what, what did it It kind of somewhere in there, a switch got flipped. I mean, and I think the switch had always been at least partially flipped, but, but it really, you know, it was just, cranked after that and then shortly after that I discovered there that creativity coaching existed and was like there's there's my people you know but but yeah and you know when when I had when I had ESL kids doing creative writing it was it was so cool to see the things that they had written like the the kids who spoke Chinese were so influenced by Chinese poetry that they would write things that you could tell even if you hadn't read a whole lot of Chinese poetry just like the way that they used images and things like that you're like that is really cool and also you see this you people who say they can't do creative writing like exactly. come come read this and then talk to me exactly. and and also i mean i had one kid who wrote this multi-part story i don't even want to call it a short story because i don't think it was all that short and and it was kind of you know you could see the influence of like manga and video games and stuff like that right so what and there were these moments and, and this wasn't the only one it's just the one that i remember but he had a character who you know two characters are fighting and the one knocks the other one out and the way he wrote it was that the one the character fell down and lost his mind and it was one of these moments where I just looked at him and I said, so here's the thing. As your teacher doing my due diligence, I have to tell you that the expression you want is that, you know, he he was knocked out, he lost consciousness, anything like yeah. that. But I also have to tell you, and I have to tell you that losing your mind means you've gone crazy in English. But I also have to tell you that I really kind of like that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. I get it. And I like the way that that works there, even though any other person picking this up is going to be like, what? You know, but this was like, he's using words in a way that makes sense. That's right. You know, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I hated having to correct it. I hated having to correct it. Well, I I mean, that's to me, this, first of all, it's really wonderful that that experience would start you again. You were already on that path, but that would really send you, hurtling down that path but i love your point about lost his mind and to me there's a word for this and the word is poetry Mm. you know poets are the ones who are you know insane about language you know we're the ones who are like oh my god that that word sounds so weird there does it fit you know and like to shoehorn something an expression anymore does blind now i think you were absolutely right to tell him that not only as a zsl teacher but Again, there's an audience problem with that. Mm-hmm. But but the potential, what I love is that you immediately went, oh, there is some rich language potential here that could, you know, like, where could that lead? And again, look what we're back to. We're back to this core of the sacred mystery. Why does that particular idiom in English have these overtones that suggest something else? And again, it, what, the first thing I feel, which I'm sure you felt the same way, is like, oh, let's play with this. Let's. Let's see, what we, is there a way you could do it where somebody knocks, every time he hits somebody, they actually lose their mind? Could there be a wizard <laughs> who can put us, you know what I mean? And you just yeah. roll this thing and see where it goes. Uh, and of course, the kid didn't know what he was saying, 
But because you set up that context, like we were saying earlier, where it's valued and encouraged, then he starts discovering things. And then, you know, how many times, well, you know, I don't know if you play, but I cannot tell you how many times I have written a song based on a finger mistake where mm. I'm playing a chord and I hit the wrong chord. And the essence of creativity there is actually having your damn ears open. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, oh, wait, I was uh, trying to play that. And, and, and what'll happen again, 99 times out of 100, it's like, oh, no, no, sorry, you missed the chord. Here, do this. Then the 90, the hundredth time, it's like, oh, wow, do that again. How does that sound? So, again, we're talking about that whole thing of, I mean, in a way, maybe there are three elements to this. I'm just off the top of my head or that context, which values this play. Mm-hmm. And then in that context, there's the doing of it. And then the third part, is paying attention. One of the most, I mean, people talk about that now as a very important spiritual practice, actually paying attention. I, I love that you loved that phrase <laughs> in that context. Because because again, this is what poets are like, Nancy. They they uh, Poets are like people who can smell a color at a hundred paces, if yes. you know what I mean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and when that's it comes why to I language. remember it. You know? Right. And it's still in your head. It's so, yeah. It was so vivid. And I just sat there looking at it going, He's not actually wrong. Literally, his character has lost his Has mind. lost it. It's just temporary. <laughs> and he yeah. temporarily lost. See, there's got to be a way to use that. I'm like, yeah. I am I have a big file for this novel I want to do, which right now is called Fantasy Novel with Magic. Uh, <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that I, I, when I hear about that, something like that, I'll think, could there be a way that one of the magic users in this thing was able to create a, temporary again i'm just mm-hmm. i'm just riffing with it but yeah. yeah no i mean and, and i i think that's absolutely right i mean there's there's so much stuff that is happening around us all the time that we're not necessarily tuned into or noticing you know that weird little dissonance or or the turn of phrase that you're like that's not what i meant to say and yet and yet i like the and yet yeah, like there's something there's something about that. There's there's something, you know, this is this is not the color I meant to mix, but this is the color yeah. I seem to have. So what am I yeah. going to do with yeah. that? Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Yeah, there's Well, you know, in a way this partially contradicts what we both agreed to earlier. Um I can about teaching creativity mm-hmm. or teaching creative writing just to give a specific example. Again, I will always say I could teach you A, B, C, and D. I can teach you the alphabet. I can't teach you how to put the letters together. I can teach you words, but I can't teach you lines, that kind of thing. But one thing we can teach them through practice is paying attention. Mm. And when you think of it at the heart, and I mean, not just as part of creativity, but at the solid bedrock core of it is radical Paying attention. That's yeah. not a good phrase. A, a, a radical level of paying attention, mm-hmm. which you do. And again, it, it's easy to see, too, how this uh, melds or shifts into the spiritual. You want to pay attention with your whole self, you know, body, mind, heart, and spirit. It's not just, I mean, I, I don't do that all the time. I mean, I, I don't want to be unrealistic about it. And this can get also really new agey and hippy-dippy <laughs> and people can take this way too far. But you think like, so if you, because I, again, I do visual art, so color is a huge thing for me and I'm looking at color all the time. Like when I'm out riding my bike. Well, sometimes I'll just look at it and go, wow, that's a cool color. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I don't know if you all have uh, crepe myrtle trees there. Anyway, they, sure. 
there's a particular brick red kind of scarlet hue of great myrtle trees that just uh, just drives me crazy. Uh, but well, th- that's actually a good example of what I'm saying because I could just go, wow, I like that shade of green. When I start thinking of that great myrtle, it's like, well, wait a minute, that that is drawing me. That that feels more about the nature of the world. That feels more about I'm a human body with eyes in this world in which another being is sending a color to me. There's almost a I don't want to call it sexual, but there's almost, there's like an attraction mm-hmm. there. So so again, at that point, and especially if I go touch it, or I'm standing closer to it, or if I smell it, I mean, again, radical level of paying attention. And I think one of the things that does happen with that is, in fact, my my word for that is beholding, mm-hmm. as opposed to just looking. Sure. I think I think that probably. I hesitate to say this because, again, like you said, people who are to whom this is natural, it just kind of happens for us, right? It just does. Mm-hmm. But I feel like when people behold in that deeper sense, creativity is almost inevitable. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's almost like it inevitably is going to restructure your neurons in some way. Now, whether that's going to lead to art or whatever is a whole other question. But I, I think, for example, that for most parents, when their child is born, they behold the child. They mm-hmm. don't just they don't just see it. I mean, this is for God's sake, what are we at? Seven billion now? How many billion <laughs> people lived in the past? This is a very common occurrence. This is a very common being here in front of you. And yet, for most parents, it's you just you see with a capital S. You don't just see. And what's funny is when you think of parents, what that usually leads to is not just that one moment, but a lifetime of giving, which is analogous, at least in some way to creativity. You know, it's like, you're going to do everything you can to make the life right for that person or make life right for that person. Huh. Yeah. I, I love your story. I, I just love yeah. that. Well, and you're, yeah, you're, so you're talking curious. about awe and transcendence and all of this too, Absolutely. which, Absolutely. you know, there, there've been a bunch of, of books in the last couple of years about awe. And I I read one of them this year because I just think it's such a fascinating thing. I, and I just bought my wife one. Which book did you read? Uh, I haven't read it yet. Docker Keltner's book, which is, is called, called Awe. Awe. Yeah. I, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. I'm going to be reading it. Yeah. 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 I mean, and he breaks it down into, I don't know, five or six different categories, I think. And, and talks a lot about everyday awe, which I thought was really interesting because I don't tend to think of it as an everyday thing. But, you know, the more, the more you go looking for the everyday awe, the better your life gets. Absolutely right. You know? Absolutely right. And again, this is one of those practices that can so easily be turned into like, I don't know, weekend symposium at the local motel or whatever, which isn't necessarily bad either. I don't mean, I don't mean to say that everybody who's doing that is a huckster, um, but that, that sense of wonder, it's really hitting me right now too, because <laughs> like now is particularly bad. The news is really, really bad at the moment. Yes, we are, we're uh, recording it, this just after Hamas attacked Israel just a couple days later. So, yeah. And we've got the war in Ukraine and mm-hmm. the continual crisis of the climate, you know, all of these things. Um, and still people getting over the pandemic and all kinds of effects of that and all this stuff. Um, I often... You know, like anybody who's paying attention, and I don't pay attention all the time because I can't. It'll just drive me into the ground. Right. 
Um, but here you you have this feeling. You get up and you're looking in the mirror in the morning and you're like, I want to help, but I'm I'm just one tiny little cog. I feel powerless. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Waging peace means, I always say this to my students, you know, we're just us little people here in this room, but waging peace means two things. Not the absence of war. You know, the time between World War One and World War Two was not peace. That was halftime. That was, they were building. They were yeah. building. It was all coming back, right? Waging peace is not an absence of war. Waging peace is two things. It's building up individuals and building communities. And obviously that can take practical forms. But to go back to our point about play, the seeking of wonder and awe is an act of play. It's not, it doesn't put food on the table. It doesn't create products coming out of the factory, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not life insurance, although I suppose in some ways it really is health wise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so the idea that we can actually find wonder in daily life, I love this Zen story and I was actually just thinking about it. So I have to put it in here because it's about enlightenment, but it can also be about transcendence and it can also be just about wonder. So the, all the, the abbot is sitting with all the young monks in the hall doing Zazen and he notices one of the young monks is missing. So they're all meditating and suddenly the, the missing young monk comes screeching in and just, you know, without a word, he doesn't bow. He runs straight to the front and he spits on the statue of Buddha and all the other young monks just jump up and grab him and they're about to beat the hell out of him. And the abbot raises his hand and says, wait, why did you spit? on the statue of Buddha. And the young monk says, show me somewhere to spit that is not Buddha. What is the world that we live in? I mean, for God's sakes, I'm in this ordinary world too. I got bills to pay. I got rent. I wake up with a sore back. I'm having trouble with that student. You know, I argue with my wife about something. She's always right. So those usually end up pretty clearly. (laughs) Um, And yet, where did the greatest mystics have their mystical experiences? Right damn here. Yeah. Where that, that moment you have when you see some incredibly beautiful thing in nature, like like remember the first time we drove into Yosemite Valley? <laughs> we got out of the car. My wife and I, our daughter is like 12 or whatever. We got out of the car. My daughter's actually super sensitive. My wife and I are sitting there with tears running down our cheeks. And my daughter's like, what is it? What is it? Um, well, okay. <laughs> but that's also, that world is right here. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't mean there's no ordinary in the sense of our regular experience. Of course we experience that. And of course it's like, ah, oh God, I got a stomach ache or I drank too much or whatever. But this is the same place where all these other pinnacle moments of human experience have happened. So I love the fact that you're saying that that was something. And again, I think more people are starting to cue into this. It's like you find it in everyday life. It's yeah. Well, and while you it's were talking, there. it occurred to me that, you know, when when there is so much awfulness in the world, finding moments of awe and wonder is is not just an act of play, it's an act of resistance. That's exactly right. Beautifully said. You know? And and it's funny, because I thought you were gonna say it's it's an act of self-care, but that you too. took it even further. But no, you took it even further. It is an act of resistance. And again, yeah. I'm not kidding myself. It's not going to save anybody in Ukraine. It's not going to save a Palestinian. It's not going to save an Israeli. But it is part of the, the the accumulation of good that we're trying to constantly add to. It is an act of resistance. And of course, hope is an act of resistance. So mm-hmm. it's very much aligned to hope. It certainly works that way for me. 
Well, and all and of this is how you change the culture. Ultimately, you get enough right. people ultimately. to commit the little acts of resistance and, and right. acts of play and whatever. And eventually it will reach its its tipping point and take hold. That's right. And, and it's funny to think of this too. I say funny, meaning like funny, odd, that paying attention, I'm just repeating a point I said earlier, paying attention is a form of creativity. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the, it's not the full on thing. There's not a, a product, but there is a, there's an inner change or an inner product of that. And, and it takes, it actually takes doing like creativity does. It actually takes that, you know, stopping, you know, getting disconnecting from all the things that are distracting you and whatever, you know, making you tired and opening up to something big, which is exactly what we see kids do when they play. Right. See kids come out of school at recess. And they're tired and they're, you know, their heads are swimming or whatever, or they're they're just tired of the whole thing. And a kid will go, tag, you're it. Everything opens. Yeah. The whole body, the whole mind, and boom, off they go. Hmm. Yep. Well, I think we've solved the problems of the world. <laughs> I think I think this should be we should send this to Biden and have him send it out. We we gotta we gotta yeah. make it here. Send it to him. Send it to, I don't know, the Pope, the Dalai Lama, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I can only hope that eventually we get to a point where people start to clue in and figure out that it really is that simple, even if it's only in your personal world, because if you, if you let yourself be so downtrodden by everything that's in the news, that's not good for you either. So you need, you need that balance. You need a way to, to stay in touch with the transcendent and the wonder in light of all of that. Well, and you know, this is one of the, another reason I have for affirmation or optimism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, to me, it seems like I'm saying this all the time. I believe in progress, but I believe progress overall is three steps forward and two steps back. Mm. That still leaves room for progress. But I mean, I'm realistic about how this thing happens all the time, but it's, encouraging as hell to me to think that it's precisely these terribly difficult circumstances that help us hone our sense of why this is important. You know, and I'm not saying it isn't important all the time because it is, but we've, we've been, I mean, domestically, politically, we've been in a contentious state for years now. Right. And then we have these problems going on in the world and then these greater problems that are affecting all of humanity, nuclear war and climate. Um, it's the old darkness light thing, right? You, mm-hmm. ju- you just know the light more by the darkness that you feel. And it's encouraging to think, I mean, I actually think you're right. Here, you and I are having this conversation. When I was younger, I don't remember people talking about creativity. Nope. I, I mean, maybe I'm sure there were some out there. I'm sure there were some psychologists who were looking at it. But from what I read, you know this better than I do. That wasn't even a big thing on the radar of most psychologists back in the day. So we're talking about something that's really powerful and really new. And the fact that it's making any inroads at all shows you that there's a great need. Another thing I think that's hilarious about human and creativity, particularly when you look at adults and play, is that adults actually cannot live without some play. So even in the most hidebound traditions, even in the most dismissive of play, we're serious adults and everything, we have all these forms of play. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sports is a huge one. Yep. And being a sports fan is a huge one. It's almost, I often think of sports fans as kind of like art fans, like the sport is like an art and they follow it like an art. Um, 
this gets into all kinds of other questions about legality and health and all the rest of it, but substances that alter mm. the mind have long been substitutes for, I'm not saying they're always unhealthy. I like to drink. I have no problem with that. But they are very dangerous, obviously, and they can easily be abused and they lead to addiction. They're 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 an unhealthy, they're a sometimes unhealthy substitute for this, these other healthier forms of play and creativity that I think a lot of adults would do, you know, would, would feel much better about themselves, like you said, if they were involved in it. So it's like we always make room for it somehow. Uh, but yeah. what, what you tend to do is starve ourselves. You know, it's like well, you, right. you can play a little bit, you can play, you're a man, you're a hetero male, you can play in this way. And of course, a lot of that yeah. gets pushed to drinking. Like if you get super drunk and you scream at the football players that you follow, you know, it's like, oh, that's okay, play. I'm like, well, okay, let's expand our definition here. But, <laughs> but it's not going away, right? It's, right. It's not going away. Right. Yeah, yeah adult uh, adult forms of, of play tend to be, what's the word I want? Contained, I guess. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Have to, we have to put a safe container around them because I think, right. I think, I think we are, when we look back at, at kids and how freely they let their imagination run, I think we're jealous and I think we're scared at the same time. And so I think we, that's absolutely we put, right. we put these boundaries on them so that we feel safer, but that also means that we never really get back to the thing that we're jealous of. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that idea of, of jealous, of jealousy is a really good point. In fact, when you, I, I love contain. And it, it also struck me that we have a tendency in a, for adult play to see it as psychobiological release mm -hmm. and relief. So it's about drinking or drugs. It's about sex. It's about uh, the kind of public emotion that you can express, like when you're screaming for a team. Uh, and then you see, for example, I, I often think of Prince's song, Dance Music, Sex, Romance. You see there's a huge amount of the play impulse. Uh, in young adults more than maybe older adults, but that goes into music concerts, you know, um, like Coachella. You know, I, I, my students, I teach a, we have like a, um, what do you call that? Uh, we call it CTW, Critical Thinking Writing. It's like freshman comp. That's what mm -hmm. it is. So I have a music theme for mine. So my students are often writing about their experiences. God, I can afford to go to these things. They go to Electric Daisy Festival or they go to Coachella or it's in Glastonbury or whatever. And um, a number of them have written really, they've been very moved by the crowd all being gripped by this rhythm, all in sync. Um, they often talk about making friends. And, you know, again, there's a shallow side to this and a temporary side to it. And what's interesting is they often do not mention any use of substances to accompany all this. And sometimes a few of them will mention that. Uh, it, it, I think it's both a good and a, and a dangerous thing, you know, that these things become very much rituals of release and play and it's around art and a lot of those festivals too that like there's art all over the site and they're you know it's, it's this whole alternative thing like burning man mm -hmm. and burning man's got its bullshit and its positive side right so of course they're going to be a bunch of rich yuppies and tech people from the bay area where i live going there and i'm not against all them i don't mean that but the, but it, it, again it just shows how primal this need for play is yeah which, which again, gives me hope in the long run. I mean, it's because it's one of those things. It's like, I don't worry about humans starving to death unless they run out of food. People aren't going to stop eating just because right. they're not interested. They're interested. And they'll <laughs> eat crap 
they'll eat crap, but even that's better than not eating. At least it will keep them alive. You know, so this, and I mean, look at the food movement now. It's getting, people are actually going, oh, wait, maybe we can eat healthier food. Maybe these processed foods aren't so great for us. Maybe we can, you know, I, I, I'm thinking that the same thing is happening with play because it's a need that's just as deep and that the more um, expansive or uncontained, to use your word, flipping it around, that people get, the more that they will understand yeah. to their own to their own benefit. Well, and, and I'm wondering, because I know that, you know, you talk a lot about following your gut and I'm kind of yeah. wondering, like, you know, is that, I, I want to talk about following your gut all on its own, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's just like that gut instinct is finally reasserting itself after so long and saying, Hey, you know what? I'm tired of being all buttoned up. This is not, this is okay for certain occasions, but it's not a way of life. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm done with that way of life. I love your balance there too. The one way to avoid this, like, um, excess to the left, to the just, you know, whatever feels good, you know, whatever. One way to do that is to talk about this very normal, mature balance between the things we do where we exercise restraint and the things we do where we let ourselves, we, we let ourselves go. And I don't mean let, our, let ourselves go sometimes as a negative connotation. And that's part of the problem, right? I think you're so right. I mean, I think I'm going to generalize at a huge level here, right? Okay. That's, I, that's always dangerous, though, because, you know, there can be a million <laughs> exceptions. But it seems to me that democracies themselves, which are far from perfect, um, at least they prioritize freedom. Now, again, I believe in this freedom that's mixed with responsibility. I mean, like, like you heard when you're in high school from every teacher, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things about freedom is it just tends to get closer to what human beings really are. So right now we have a lot of people who are saying all this racism, all this homophobia, all this sexism. No, no, I, I want to be who I am. I deserve that freedom and you shouldn't be treating me in ways that curtail that freedom. And it's not good for you. So I put this in that category. Jeez, when I was in high school and a young adult, therapy was like, Therapy was a horrible thing. Oh, you, yeah. It's like, oh, you're loony bin. You know, there's been this huge movement to destigmatize mental illness. And we, we have a stronger understanding, a lot of people anyway, that there are different levels of it, that we all go through things, that going to a therapist is not bad or weak. You know, I, I feel like it's part of this whole movement to be that freedom begins, which allows the fullness of humanity to actually be expressed and valued. Not just to be expressed, but to be valued. And I think play has, it's funny because it, you talk to almost anybody today and they'll say, oh yeah, racism is bad. Oh yeah, we have to work on the climate. Oh yeah, look at the imperialism. Look at Russian imperialism. Plays on the same list, but it doesn't make the list. It's not in the mainstream mind in that same mm -hmm. sense. So maybe maybe it's a harder thing to, to sell. Or maybe it's just a naturally, it's going to happen downstream from these far more pressing, I mean, if I could, if I could wave a magic wand in the world right now, and my choice was I could stop all racism or I could make people play in a healthy way. Well, of course I'd stop racism first. It's triage. You know, the, the, the damage is still being done and all the historical damage is there. So maybe it's one of those things that just happens in a natural order, which is maybe even better. Well, it also makes me wonder if we played more, would be, would we be less racist? I think, I think that is absolutely true. Yeah. I don't think that's a wild claim. I think, I think people, I mean, what creates racism? Well-adjusted people? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's something. yeah. 
So like I said, I do, I do want to make sure that we talk about following your gut because I think it's an important sure. concept and I would love to hear how you've done it, how you, how you include it in your teaching, wherever you would like to go with that, that makes the most sense to you. You know, just because I love that you brought up this whole question of um, wonder and transcendence. Um, I didn't grow up that way. I mean, I grew up in a very Catholic world that was pretty much, my parents are super Catholic. My uncle who kind of lived with our family was a priest. Um, ironically, my dad was much more of a, a stickler for Catholicism than my uncle, the priest, who was also <laughs> a writer. Um, but uh, a lot of that religion was taught by rote in those days. And there's still plenty of places in the world where religion is taught by rote. I, to me, it hardly is worthy of the name religion. You know, And this is one of the reasons why we're having this huge semantic split between religion on one hand and spirituality on the other. Uh, I don't. I think the semantic split doesn't make sense ultimately, but I totally understand why it's happening. So, so I, I, I approve of it. Like, like my approval means everything. Um, but my point in the, is that there's a, a spiritual component to this gut thing that just thrills me. You know, um, I think a lot of what we're talking about. Obviously, you and I have emphasized play, and the other side of that, which has come up naturally with play, is imagination. And the role of imagination in terms of its cultural understanding, acceptance, and the way people look at it, it's really kind of similar. There's a tendency to dismiss imagination as the property only of the artistic or the creative mm -hmm. people over here. By the way, the tech world has kind of opened that up a little bit yeah. because inventor, inventors have always been people of imagination. But tech has had so much, digital tech has had so much influence on people that if people are more like, oh, she came up with this great idea. Now there's a startup. And, you know, again, I live right here in the middle of Silicon Valley. Um, the way imagination is thought of generally, though, still tends to be, you know, it, it doesn't get the, I mean, knowledge, information gets the prime role in our society generally mm -hmm. by default, which is not the way it should be prioritized. But of course, I believe in information. Knowledge comes next. Wisdom comes next, and some people don't even believe in wisdom. And then imagination is like, is it even in the race? You know, is it, the and I, again, I don't. Child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what they do to redheaded stepchildren? They beat them. You know that that horrible saying. Oh my God. Um, but but so my point is that this this gut thing is. I actually don't like that phrase. Go with your gut. It's. I don't have any problem with the idea of going with the center of the body. I don't have any problem with it being physical. It's just that the imagination, again, has this ultimately mysterious source epistemologically. Mm -hmm. And this, now I could go off on a whole long thing of this, and I won't, I promise you. But one of my big points is that we have been in intense epistemological crisis in the Western world since the Enlightenment. So for 300 years, we've been running this experiment based on the idea that to know something, you have to know it with either the certainty of logic and a reason which is a little, a little more diffuse, or with a certainty of science. This is such an incredibly procrustean, truncated, reduced view of the world, which has also, by the way, brought tremendous amounts of knowledge and wisdom into life. I'm not anti-science, I'm pro-science. Mm -hmm. What I'm against is scientism, which is yes. when you take the rest of the world and you say, well, science teaches me that your love for your wife doesn't exist, it's just molecules. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So this gut thing, I mean, we it is odd to think that we constantly use it. Our assessment of daily situations, of people we meet, 
what's the temperature of this conversation I'm entering right now? Can I ask her for this at this moment? Or would it be better to wait? Huh, I wonder what he thinks of me. Imagination, for example, is the glue that holds society together because the better we can imagine what another person's life is like, the more we can, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it has this role in in spirituality. And I'm, when I say spirituality, I mean to actual theology and, and an art. The problem is, well, I love to think of some kind of dialogue, right? So it's somebody like Descartes or somebody who's saying, well, it's uncertain. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not predictable. It's not consistent. And people come up with all kinds of crazy BS based on it. And I'm like, you are exactly right. But that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. What, what I think is funny is some people will just, and again, not everybody's still a materialist. They're nihilist, materialist, relativist. Whatever. They'll say, you know, the imagination. Oh, you think you can come up with the truth because you've imagined it. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm like, well, okay, do you feel the same way about love? Epistemologically, love is not science. You don't, you know, you don't fall in love with somebody by saying, oh, here are the 15 points I like about him. And here are the are my predictions based on formula of what our life. You you have a feeling. Now that doesn't mean if you banish reason from falling in love, you're in trouble. People get themselves yeah. screwed over big time that way all the time. So we want the balance. But at the heart of love, you know, my wife and I all often say, you know, it's funny. We not only like each other, we love each other. Or sometimes we say it the other way. We not only love each other, we like each other. Yates has this great line where he said, I got to look this up again because I'm forever quoting it and I'm not getting exactly right. He says, a man doesn't fall in love with the woman. It's from sexist time, right? Because of who she is or what she says or whatever. Again, I, I should look it up. But he says, she, he falls in love with her because she has a certain way of scratching her head. And when I first read that quote to my wife, she said, that's exactly right. I don't know exactly what it is about you. And I said, it's the same for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly. I, there are plenty of other women who I think are wonderful, attractive, smart, funny, whatever it is. But I don't feel for them what I feel for you. And that's gut. Now, the, the awesome thing about all of this, the icing on the cake, was I sit down and try to put together a work of visual art or when I'm working on my novel, I get to do that over and over again. Yeah. Oh, she just pulled a fish out of the water. What color is the fish? I don't know. Maybe it's yellow gold. Oh, my gut likes that. And in fact, I'll go back and change those things. I'm sure you do the same thing mm-hmm. in your own writing. You go, oh, that, that sounds great. My gut tells me. My gut is not reliable, but my gut is really good. Yeah. It's not consistent, but it often achieves a tremendous amount. So one thing I'll say to my creative writing students all the time is, Look, trust your gut, trust your gut, trust your gut. Am I telling you that this is going to solve all your problems? No. Trusting your gut is going to not only not solve your problems, it's going to cause you other problems because <laughs> your gut is not 100% correct, but it is the best thing you have. And in the end, it can do more than anything else can in your writing. If you, you got to learn your other stuff through hard work, sure. your technique, your structure, all that kind of stuff. But it's it's like this, it's like this beautiful little fire that's at the heart of every artistic enterprise that can't be extinguished and can't be lit, which is the same thing I see in myself. There's something in me that can't be, well, it could be extinguished in death, but I mean, I yeah. it can't be extinguished while I'm alive. It can't, I can't make it happen. I can't light that fire. I can't create myself. I see the same thing in my wife and, I, and seeing that maybe, maybe it's those two things that somehow, you know, whatever, whatever that is, that somehow, see each other and burn together or something like that. But 
Yeah. And, and you know, as, as I'm listening to you, what I'm thinking is that, like, I think that that's where where that that creative spark really ignites for us. It's not between our ears. I mean, it can be, you know, the question that kind of captivates yeah, you, right. or whatever. But that's not that's not what pulls you to do something with it. No, no. It comes from a very different place. I'm going to quote you on that. It doesn't happen between our ears. I think mm-hmm. that's exactly right. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if you do this kind of thing, but I keep these. So if I have a book idea, I'll keep a folder, you know, a file folder. Uh, some of mine are hard copy and some are computer digital. So I have one and it's getting big. I mean, it's probably this much of a file drawer, you know, so we're talking about this much. The basic idea is about spirals and vortices. I haven't gotten any from that. <laughs> I, I may have a plot. I may not. I may have some plots for some interviews. Maybe it's a short story collection. Maybe it's a novel. Is it science fiction? Is it straight realist fiction? I have no idea. But one thing keeps me filling it up, spirals, vortices. Oh, my God. I don't know what this is. I mean, it doesn't make any damn sense, really. It is. This, this is, I love what you said. This did not happen between my ears. Yeah. There's something about that image that just, and again, the likelihood is that, I mean, I'm getting old now. The likelihood is I will never write a book about that. I can't write a book about it until it, until the things that do happen between my ears happen. Like, oh, this could be a character. This mm-hmm. could be a conflict, right? Or maybe it's a series of essays that it doesn't, it's not even fiction, whatever it is, the structure, whatever that comes to it. Right. But I, I can't leave the idea alone. I cannot. So I'm constantly throwing in, Every newspaper article I see about tornadoes, everything I see about any kind of math that's about spirals, you know. That's so cool. I'm trusting my gut. Yeah. 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 And, think- if, and the thing is, what has happened is I've had ideas before that were vague and diffuse like that. And then the structure thing did come. And then, then I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Then it suddenly makes sense. Then it suddenly makes sense. And there's a place for whatever that pull is, there's a place for that to be unloaded or whatever. Right. Do you keep folders for writing projects? Do you do that kind of thing? Or do you? I, I have a terrible habit of doing the thing that I know you shouldn't do, which is thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. I'll remember it. And then not <laughs> writing it down. No. And then, you know, two weeks later going, I had that really good idea. Now, what was it? Hey, so yeah, tell you one, what. one day I will learn. Yeah, now that now that the phone is more use the more phone, man. Prevalent. It saved yeah. my ass many times. Yeah. yeah. Of course, the problem now is I've got too I've got too much on my phone. I have to transcribe it. You know, got a ton of stuff <laughs> on there. But that's a good problem to have. I don't mind. Yeah, that. I mean, I have I I started a a Substack, which is kind of fascinating to me. How many people do not know what Substack is? I, I kind of still don't know. Say it, please. Yeah, It is a platform for newsletters, but it's it's not just like, you know, a newsletter sending service. It it has a community built in and a feature called Notes that's sort of Twitter-ish where people can share things and have conversations and stuff okay. like that, okay. which I did not know when I signed up for it. I just knew everybody's using Substack and I feel like I want a place to encourage myself to do more writing and play with it and just experiment. So I set up a Substack and I thought, 
I don't know if anybody's going to want to read any of this, but whatever. Um, put it out there. Yeah. More, more people seem to want to read it than I would have expected. And uh, so far, and I haven't decided if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I have kept with, I post something every Monday. I was not sure if I wanted to do a structure at, at first or not, but so far it seems to be working. Um, and then I post about the podcast on Wednesdays and see yeah. where stuff goes. Yeah. But but it is not, you know, they they kind of try to preach you the gospel of like, pick your niche and tell people this is what you're going to write about and this is how often and this is what they should expect. And I was like, look, <laughs> this is an experiment. I couldn't tell you what I'm going to write about from one week to the next. You know, the first week I did it, I, I wrote the first post, I put something out about the podcast and then Sinead O'Connor died and I wrote a poem and I posted it, you know, two days later because well, I was like, here it is. There you go. Um but I do, I do have in the notes on my phone, like working drafts for that yeah. things that have yeah. popped up that I, that I want to play with for that. Good. So, so there are things that are, you know, every once in a while I'll look and I'm like, Oh, that one, I'll play with that one today, you know? Um, but that has been kind of an interesting experiment. And I, I make sure that I always call it experimental because I mean, I, about a month ago, I had an accident where I, fell and literally landed right on my face and had a oh, lovely black God, eye. Sorry. And I I posted about it because, you know, among other things, you know, a friend had challenged me not to tell the same story twice about how I got it. <laughs> and so I posted a couple. Oh, that's awesome. And I yeah, that. I was like, oh, sure. You're not the one who has to come up with something every time. Right, Easy right, for you to right. say. <laughs> you right. But but then somebody that I was talking to for the podcast just last week was like, you should totally write the story for all of those things. And I was like, I don't know if I'm writing all of them, but I'm willing to try one. So this past week, when I kind of halfway gave myself the week off because it's my birthday this week, so I've been on vacation. Good for you. Happy um, birthday. Thank you. But I put the back up and I said, okay, help me decide, you know, you guys vote. And the one that right, gets the most right. votes is the one that I will play with. So, so yeah, I mean, there's no way that I could anticipate that and put it into a neat little niche for people to, no, this is completely experimental. It will probably be something completely ridiculous because as, as it stands right now, the top vote getter is that my Borg implant didn't go well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got a built-in audience for who, that one. Who knows where that's going to go? It could be totally serious. It could end up, it's the Borg. It could end up being creepy. I really don't know. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's just totally an experiment. But it's been a really fun place to just throw things out there and also meet other writers. So I recommend it to people who want a place to write and and to encourage themselves to have to do more writing because there's a place to put it. Substack is a pretty cool place. So, well, and yeah. again, this is all, this is all trusting your gut and play, right? And, I mean, I, I, and that go. one, that the impulse to do that is one of those things that I was looking from between my ears going, what is this about? Because I couldn't explain it. It was just there and it wanted to be done. It wanted to be done. It wanted to be done. And I was looking at different platforms and looking at different things. And finally I was like, look, just do Substack. Everybody's doing Substack. If you hate it, you can move it. Just do it. Just, just, you need to do it. And I think, I think I set the whole thing up in less than a week because it, it, it wanted to be done. I don't know why, but it did. So I did it. That fits with our idea about play and about 
one thing that does, and I, I mean, we reference this a little bit, but one thing that does stand in the way of a lot of people, grownups and play is that you do have to take that step, right? Mm. That, that whole thing about taking that step and people say, get it out there, take a risk, you know, dance like nobody's watching. I mean, I love that whole basic idea. And, and it also, like you said, okay, so I write something that doesn't work. This is another thing I'll tell my students all the time. Because of the nature of your gut, follow your gut. You're going to get all kinds of crap. Just write new stuff, right? Yeah. This is this is how you get there. It's constant. I mean, nobody thinks that's odd in sports that your coach is going to put in scrimmage day after day, week after week after week before the season starts, because that's how you start developing the stuff. You get into the right. Flow yeah. Right. And I, and I think it's great that you would also just the, the one thing that the digital world adds to that is it has this public mm-hmm. exposure. And again, the thing about there's an advantage to writing for myself alone because I don't have to take any, you know, I can I can be in creative control. But you are having this collaborative right. moment with people and meeting right. other writers. So, again, it's a harder step to take because it's more public, but it's also more collaborative and more communal. And I know at least one person who's writing his new book on Substack because he wants the feedback on it. There you go. Oh, I, I'm not you surprised know. at all. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, the other thing that, that it's showing is like, you don't know, you, your impression of the thing that you wrote is only your impression. You have no idea how it's going to land. And, and I've, I've put a couple of poems in there and one from a couple of weeks ago, I kind of looked at it and I was like, yeah, I don't, I really don't know if this is baked. I have no idea, but it's <laughs> Sunday night at eight o'clock. So out it goes tomorrow, you know? And the next day I got an email from a friend of mine. She was like, oh, your poem was so beautiful. And I was like, okay, I guess it was baked. What do I know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, know? that's a really good point. And this is, that is funny. Cause when you think of it, you're not only trusting your gut, you're trusting a lot of other people's guts. And I mean, it's a different thing because you never know, like you say, what the responses are going to be. But um, one of probably the single best thing I ever learned about writing came from Peter Elbow, who's a writing guru. Big back mm-hmm. in the 70s. I still think, he's, you, you know, a lot of people don't. What he emphasized to me was what I realized was the essence of craft. And the essence of craft is figure out how what you, the words you choose, figure out what effect they're going to have on other mm. people reading them. I never did that for years. I mean, that doesn't mean I wasn't paying attention to it, you know, somewhere deep back in my head. I want to write a good story. And if I said this, I thought that was good. But he really opened it up for me. And it took me a long time to to get that sense, which is when you put it out there and it starts becoming an interaction, that's where craft happens. Craft does not, I mean, my idea before was craft yeah. happens in here. And his point, he didn't sit in these words, but I'm saying craft happens here craft is a it's a it's a basically transactional thing mm-hmm. in fact my wife influenced me a lot of that because she was re- reading I don't, so louise rosenblatt or somebody it was transactional theory of literature I, I don't know all the details of that but she kept emphasizing this and she's a reading specialist so my wife is so i would she had all this experience with how actual readers read far more than I ever have. Because oh, wow. a teacher can get up in front of the room, teacher can get up in front of the room and just spew stuff out. Right. And your kids write stuff back, but you don't necessarily know how they're hearing what you're saying and all that stuff. A lot of teachers are just like, well, did they give me A, B, and C? Because that's what I'm asked for. And I, that's not a transaction. That's what going up to McDonald's and ordering something from the window, you know, that you just yeah. get one thing out. And she would talk about all, my wife would talk about all the incredible, think of all the complexities. You're sitting there with a with a classroom, say 25 fifth graders. 
the complexities of what they're bringing to their transactions with language are huge. How much more is that true about adults Mm. who have much more experience? Now, I can't control as a writer, I can't control all of that. Right. And of course, I would say some of the some of you're going to get it wrong. I didn't intend it that way. Maybe I wasn't clear, or maybe I was clear and you just missed it. But I'm not going to get into judging all that stuff. The point is, I've got to think about how those people are reacting. So I salute you for putting those things out there and getting that response. For some reason, that doesn't feel. I, I feel like I want to wait mm-hmm. till the book comes out, and I don't know. If that's what my gut's telling me. Could be wrong, could be right. It'd be very interesting to write a book like the your, your friend or whoever you were just talking about, where your entire book is done like a, a focus group, where you're putting it out there and people are responding to. I mean, in that case, it's multiple authors in a way. In a way. But yeah. his is a nonfiction book. But I did talk to a guy last year, I think, who, um, and I'm trying to remember my, his name off the top of my head started with a V. I think it was Vince, but I can't remember his last name. Um, and he he wrote his book as a podcast. He released a, every chapter as an episode. And then he took that feedback and incorporated it. And I thought, wow, that's a that's an interesting way to do it, you know? And essentially, that's no different from Dickens, right. you know, serializing all his stuff. And of course, he must have heard. I mean, people wrote him letters all the time. Yeah. I, I, Conan Doyle, you know, people are always like demanding more Sherlock Holmes and stuff. That's so it's not as new as it may seem, even though the scale of it, the degree right. of it is very new. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think you're totally right to listen to your gut. Well, and that's the thing right now, I feel that way. But what you're planting in my head, which I think is really interesting, is to someday do something in that format where there's that tremendous level of constant collaboration. Obviously, the writer would still be the one making the decisions. But people, I mean, if you, again, we talked about this earlier, like a teacher or a parent, if the writer in that circumstance created a, a an environment where people could feel really free to be creative, God only knows what they could come up oh, with yeah. and how that book might twist and turn or how that story might twist and turn. Um, that's that's really interesting to think about. Yeah. It, huh. It's interesting to to watch this process because he's definitely there's a whole chapter that he completely rewrote based on whole on everybody's feedback yeah. because you know the questions that we asked and the way that we reacted to it and he was like you know because I think I think I was a was somebody who said I feel like there's a story here that's missing like that there's some kind of um, context piece um, that goes with this more theoretical thing that you're talking about that's really interesting. interesting. But yeah. I think that because he, the the person in question is Kelly Flanagan. He's been on the show twice and he's great. And and so he's a therapist, but he's also started writing fictions. But this is more one of his okay. therapy-ish books. And, right. and so, you know, he kind of started thinking about it. He's like, I see what you mean and I'm going to think about this. And when he posted the new version, it was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is exactly exactly right. This he is felt it exactly what you needed. Yeah, and I think it it was just enough to jog him, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. Which is the other interesting thing about feedback, right? Because you know, I think Neil Gaiman has said like when you get feedback on your writing, the things that people are telling you don't work are almost always correct, but the ways that they'll tell you to fix them are almost always right, wrong. Right, right, and and so right. you know. I don't think any of us were sitting there going, you should do this and you should do that. You know, it was more no, like no, it, yeah. there's there's a thing here 
you know, that's a little disjointed, that's not quite, not quite clicking. And, and he just knew exactly what to do with it. And the result was beautiful. That's a critical point. And that, by the way, just dovetails perfectly into what Peter Elbow says, into what Peter Elbow said. Um, one of his points that I emphasize with my students is when you're in critique group, getting feedback from everybody, we have a few rules. The first rule is that the writer never defends himself or herself ever. The second one is that the, the, the critiquers, they can say anything they want, but they are never going to find out what the writer's final decision is. I mean, they could ask me or they could ask a writer, but we don't, we don't set that up in class because I want that writer to have the absolute freedom to take or not take. And I always tell the writers, wait at least 48 hours before you make any decisions. Ooh. Listen to everybody as if everything they're saying is right. Accept it all as true, even if you hate it. 48 hours, trust your gut. Because by that time, you'll be past a bunch of this stuff, especially getting past that defensiveness that has been a mm. normal part of lots of critique groups, which has ruined a lot of people for writing, in my oh, opinion. Yeah. And then you can just say, you know what? I'm the boss, and I here's what I'm going to go with. Um, and that, that to me, seems to maximize the, the positive. Mm -hmm. but, but I love that this, this, I mean, when you think of it, too, that process isn't completely brand new. Because what I'm saying is, for me right now, I'm going to wait and let an editor do that for me. Right. Now, the question then becomes, how are editors as opposed to readers? And the answer is, well, of course, editors are experts, so they have this advantage. But the disadvantage of being an editor is you're one person. Yeah. And the advantage of readers is that you're getting this response from all kinds of people who are your, by the way, your ultimate goal is them. They are where you're headed. So there's a good and a bad side to both of those things. And it makes me think of the way popular music is going right now despite the horrible problem of theft and musicians not getting the revenue that they deserve and all the rest of it. Mm. One of the great things that's happening is we're getting all kinds of music that comes out independently. Right. People don't have to sign with labels anymore. And of course, just like in the world of independent publishing in the book world, of course that produces a ton of, you know, a scale crap, mediocre, a little better than mediocre, whatever. Of course it does that. I mean, I, my own work, Crap, mediocre, you know, I, I run the same range too. No question about it. But it does mean that people can get out without, with 100% creative control. Most of the time, 100% creative control for artists is not going to produce good art. Some of the times it's going to produce really good art and art that we wouldn't have if we're under the, like, editors say all, uh, labels say all, you know, that that kind of control by mm -hmm. them. Which, of course, and the other thing with them is those things also inevitably have to be driven at least to some degree by market considerations right which aren't necessarily bad i'm not against you know i'm not against marketing but it, uh, people will come up with things that are incredible hits whoever i mean probably it's because of the barbie movie but whoever thought oppenheimer would make a billion dollars i'm sure when they were putting <laughs> that movie together nobody thought that this book about this professor was going to make a billion dollars well guess what it's beautifully done it's on a critical theme i mean you know again this is all everything you and I've said for probably the last 10 minutes here has been about what do we want to say? Not the dominance, the 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 power of the gut. Mm. The power of the gut, which is a way, a stand-in for human intuitive imagination. Yeah. When you put it that way, it sounds a lot more does that sound fancy? <laughs> oh no, I'm not using my gut. I'm using my human intuitive imagination. Well, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it doesn't get anywhere near enough credit. No, it doesn't. And it's it's hard to credit. I mean, 
what is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what exactly is it? We don't know. We just know it works. We don't know. We, we just know it works. It's just like love. I don't really know what love it's, is. It's that I know it's, mystery. And it's and my whole, I'll base my whole life on it in a heartbeat, even though it's a mystery. And it's like, God, I'm starting to feel very cozy with the mystery in that sense. Mm. I'm starting to feel familiar. It does, It is, I mean, these, this mystery can be, I mean, look at love. People say it, it can disappear overnight. It's, it's not yeah. under control. It's not predictable. It has its terrible side. And this is true about, you know, nature itself. We, we you know, 65 million years ago, an asteroid plowed into this planet. If it happened today, well, maybe today we could fend it off with all these new things we got going. But I mean, I love nature. Nature is my mother. My mother could reach down and snap my neck. And yet my mother also gives. And my life depends on that mother and what she gives. And I'm like, that's good. I'm balanced. That's good. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful. That means yeah. I got to take all of it together. But yeah. Well, I know. Now I feel like I need to jump up and say, can I get a witness? <laughs> get the organ, get the organ start playing. <laughs> all right, everybody. Pat, we're, we're passing the, we're passing the, what do you call that thing? The contribution basket? What the, do they the call plate. that thing? Passing the plate. Yeah, passing the plate. We're passing the plate. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to make sure because we haven't really talked a whole lot about all of the specific things that you do, and you do so many of them. I want to make sure that, that we get some of that in here, though we have been at this for a while. So I also want to make sure that you have time. <laughs> I do have time. Okay, I, I, I very much appreciate that, uh, <laughs> that question. Um, as I often say, I am a monogamist in life and a polygamist in art. And I realized years and years ago that this was, the, this is impractical to the point of stupidity for a freelance artist, right? I mean, I see myself as a generalist in a specialist world. And I think there are things to be said, pro and con for being a generalist and pro and con for being a specialist. But I'm definitely out of the, the norm now, the way things go. The smart thing for me to do would have been to stick with one genre of art and just develop it. Particularly for me, because uh, my wife and I really believe in gender equality in marriage. And we really believe in parenting. And I was a K-12 teacher for years. I was a K-12 teacher for 14 years, middle school and high school. And I've been teaching at college level ever since. And by the way, when I was a K-12 teacher, 10 of those years, I was a coach. My God, the schedule. I, you know, mm -hmm. I've got kids at home. I have a family, a wife and kids, and I'm a teacher, which is a job that never ends. There is no time clock. If you're a teacher, you pray for a time clock because you, you'll never get one. And then I'm coaching and you're traveling. And all this stuff. So I just got done as much as I could. So if I had any sense at all, I would have said, okay, pick one thing and focus on it. But I couldn't do it. I, music came early and I can't stay away from it. I absolutely can't. Um, Storytelling was a huge thing for me too. And I, I do work as an oral storyteller, although I haven't had much work lately, pandemic and all that stuff. Um, and then visual art, I, I thought I'd actually conquered visual art because I kept it on the back burner so much that I would never, I remember one time I was I was working out, I was running around a, a college field all by myself and I stopped in this place next to a big building and I was, there's a little bit of cement there like at a doorway and I was doing pushups and stuff. And I noticed these little, flecks of black rubber and this like blue green glass and something else and next thing i knew i was sitting there arranging them in little patterns 
You know, I was like, oh, I'll put this there. I was like, what are you doing? You know, there's nobody around. And I was like, and then I realized it was that itch. It was that visual yeah. artage that I couldn't, that I couldn't scratch. And that's come back really strong lately. And of course, what happened there is once I got one of these, suddenly there were all these possibilities there that I hadn't done. That he didn't have before. He's holding up his phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I keep doing that. I keep forgetting there's a podcast and I'm doing the thumbs up things. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's the thumbs up sound or whatever. Thank you. So um, I do too many things, but I have two responses to the massively stupid impracticality of this. Uh, one is that, uh, like I told you, I'm the oldest of 11 kids and 11 kids is too many kids. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's seriously, it's a, it creates problems. And we would talk about this sometime. My siblings and I, we'd go, yeah, it's too many kids. Your mom and dad were overworked. All this other. And then we look around and we go, but who could we leave out? Mm. You know, there was no, I mean, the, the conversation always ended right there because there was, there's nobody we want to leave out. So I look at these things and I go like, you have four major careers and you have a full-time job. What are you doing? Well, who, which can I leave out? I left out everything I could possibly. In fact, there are some things I am leaving out of my life that I'm not going to do. I just won't have time. Um, but the other thing is just the joy of it. I, I mean, not only the joy of what each art form is in itself, but the joy of turning from one to another. I mean, I mean for me, inspiration is actually never a problem. And I rarely make absolute generalizations like that, but I write and write and write and write. And if I start getting you know, you get that little burned feeling. You like a, you get start feeling a little thin or whatever. It's like, go do some songwriting. Mm. I was like, ah, I haven't done this for a long time. I can't wait to get into it. You starting, you're working hard on that. You get a little burned out, whatever. It's like, oh, let's put together some of these images and see what you come up with. Oh, I've been waiting so long to get to these things. So it's just like this, like this carousel of, of joy and anticipation that yeah. happens over and over again. And of course, they inform each other a lot. So one of the things that's happening now, and one of the things I hope to do during this, I'm actually on sabbatical, so I have a year to work on these things, is to take some poetry and put it with some visual art and put them together and make a book where I, where I combine those things, which has been done many times before. But, you know, so there's this constant intersection of these things. Do you write and do something else? Your brother does music. Does he <laughs> write? Do you he guys does take not this write. Approach? Um, okay. he, he, but like draws, you said, he's, architect. he's an architect. Yeah. 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 So those are two, his two big things, but he also does photography. He used to do like in high school, he did more, you know, painting in art classes and things like that. So I don't he's, think he's, he's done, done that for a I'm long doing. time, but he, he, he still does a lot of photography along with the architecture yeah. and the music. Yeah. So he's a multiple as opposed to a singular. Yeah. And again, pros and cons for pros and cons for both sides. Some of the greatest work in the world is done by people who mm -hmm. focus on a, on a single thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how they, how they come together. And, you know, like what you were saying, how they inform each other. And, and I find myself wondering, because I noticed this when I've not done something for a while and it's not necessarily something creative. I mean, when, when I jump yeah. in the pool for the first time in a while right. and start to swim laps, I have the same feeling, which is, wow, I forgot how good this feels. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, I, I, part of my approach too is like, I often say, 
I was not at all precocious, but I am prolific. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to find my way to art, and it took me a long time to get better. I was terrible for a long time. And in fact, with my visual art recently, a bunch of my visual art that I started doing, like during, which is during the pandemic, by the way, because I had some time, um, stuff that I thought was wonderful. And I'm looking back now, and I'm going, Tim, oh my God, that is terrible. <laughs> or at best, mediocre. And this is one of the reasons I'm really sympathetic with my students, because it's, it's a natural part. And I've learned now, because I'm old enough, I'm like, I don't get bent out of shape now when I produce crap. I'm like, oh yeah, that didn't work. You know, let's move right. on to the next thing. Uh, but but that uh, that whole, the prolific part, when you, by the way, to describe myself as prolific, I don't mean that as a self-compliment. There are people who are mentally ill who are prolific writers. You know, they filled notebooks up with gibberish. Being prolific doesn't mean anything having yeah. to do with quality. But I like the way, um, so I grew up in Colorado Springs and Denver, mostly Colorado Springs. We have cottonwoods in the Midwest. Do you guys have cottonwoods in New Jersey? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, they, like when June comes, they just like, they start putting out seeds and it's like snow because there's these really soft little cottony things, filaments, and they float. And if you get a big cottonwood tree, it's like, it looks like it's snowing in June, right? And of course, like a lot of things in nature, they're going to put out probably thousands, maybe a big cottonwood tree puts out millions. Well, how many of them are going to turn into trees? Yeah. Not very many. They're going to be eaten. They're going to fall into rocks. It's like the New Testament parable of the sower and the seed. And that's kind of my approach. And I've found like, so for example, with my visual art lately, I, I do it whenever I can. It's definitely on the back burner because I'm working on this musical and work on this novel. Um, and those are taking the priority for sure. But I look at all the stuff I've done. And, oh, that's not very good. Oh, no, that didn't. Oh, I thought that was good. Whatever. Oh, wait, I like that one. That one worked. And now I've got a lot of those that I really like. Now, of course, of that 100%, other people aren't going to like them as much as I like them. I made them, right? So it's going to go down again. Like the cottonwood tree, every time the seeds go out, a certain percentage just falls to the wayside and dies. But if I end up with a new cottonwood tree, you know, then, I'm, then I feel good about that. So I, I have that approach. I'm just way too much of a generalist in all areas. It's like multiple genres. Like even as a writer, I write in 20 different genres of writing. Uh, it, there's all that. And then there's this like just, just produce work and see what happens and see how that goes. So that's, that's how not, I go. That's not a bad thing, though. I mean, you're reminding me That's a wonderful that, thing. It just worries me. That study where, you know, they sent students out and said, I want you to take 10 really good photos. And, and that batch went out to deliberately try to take the best photos they could. And they told the other group, just go take as many photos as you can. And, you know, the the quantity of really good photos came from the ones who produced more stuff, not I the ones who know. deliberately sat out to take the best things they could possibly take. You could not yeah. have said uh, anything more designed to make me happy than that. <laughs> I, honest to God, because this is something I worry about and I'm getting old. I mean, now I, now I feel like I'm in a race with death because I have all these big projects I want to complete, but that makes me feel better. Cause that makes me think, okay, I'm actually doing better even with this pace, right? Yeah. That, that's amazing. That has really powerful implications. I'm going to try to, I know I read about it somewhere. I'll see if I can find the link. And if I'll, you find it, yeah, send it to yeah. Me. Don't worry if you can't. And if I find it, way, I'll throw it in the show notes too for everybody who's okay. listening. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. No, that just sounds very, very interesting. By the way, I have to say, that's a very play way of approaching. Right? Right? Right. Just go play. Just, just go, go play. play. Yeah. Just go have fun taking pictures. 
Yeah. And that it it makes perfect sense to me that that's how it works. Because you're not you're not overthinking it. No, you're right. But that was counterintuitive to me until you told me that. Yeah. And overthinking is a problem. Overthinking can easily mm-hmm. be a problem for writers. You know, and again, what I'm doing too is overthinking a life choice I made, which I made long ago, <laughs> which I'm obviously not going to pull back on. So why even think about it? It's like, yeah. you know, just eat, just eat better so you can live longer. You know, that's, that's what I need to do instead of overthinking. Well, and that may also be the beauty of something like Substack. If you're going to put something out every week, you can only yeah. chew on it for so long. And I mean, that's I have right. things sitting in, in my notes that have been in there for weeks and weeks, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm working on it every day. It's you know, right, like I said right. today, I feel like that one's pulling at me. So I'm going to look at this one, you know, right, but, right. but, and other things I just suddenly, you know, I, I may have thought that I was going to publish this piece next week, but now I realize, nope, I need to yeah. write about this and I need to write about it now. And that's what's going out on Monday. That's and right. there goes my weekend, and, you right. know, but, but you don't, you don't really have that opportunity to sit and chew on it until it's half dead. And so (laughs) it may not be perfect when it goes, but it goes. Yeah. Well, and again, this play, that's that play approach. There's a great deal of freedom in that. And there's a great deal of actually reflecting immediate life experience as you live it. Yeah. 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 And that's obviously too, this is a big part of what social media is, is that it can be very, very immediate for good and ill. Right? right. Obviously, it creates its problems, but then there's that other dynamic side to it. And I, I love thinking about the dynamic side of all this because obviously there's so many bad things, you know, bad effects happening with tech right now that need to be addressed. And I think they're being addressed, but I like to, I like to, I mean, it's like, again, I live in Silicon Valley. 10 years from now, the big tech companies could do no wrong. 10 years ago, I mean. Right. Right now, they can do no right. You know, so, so I, again, there's, there's a balance in there somewhere and I'm not saying it's like 50, 50, cause they have, they are having some really big problems and some bad effects, but uh, you know, again, that immediacy is a very powerful thing, a powerful part. Democratic immediacy is a huge, powerful part of the tech revolution. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting, but you know, I feel like it also is like, say, Today, you don't feel like you're producing any work that is worth reading, seeing, hearing, whatever. It could be the same thing 10 years from now. Absolutely. Be in a completely different place. Absolutely right. And the only Absolutely way you get there right. is by not giving up. That's exactly right. Just And again, that's it's funny to think that Go Play is both a, it's both a, a, a liberation and a, like not an admonishment, but it's like, get off your ass and go play. You know what I mean? It's right, like, right. do it. It's the doing, you know, but, but it's fun. So, so go out there and have that fun, but don't just sit around thinking about having fun. Go actually mess around with this and, stuff. And isn't that interesting too? Because like, I think we think about doing things now more than we actually do them. And I wonder exactly. how much of that is because so much of life seems to happen on a screen now. Like Absolutely we've forgotten right. that no life is a thing that happens in a world with trees and grass and markers and paper and you know refrigerators and whatever (laughs) you know all of other people all of this stuff is is where life actually happens it's not it's not on the screen i'm a member of the tv generation in fact i was born in 53 which was the year i have found out since that tv's just television blew up over the country everywhere we started 
that. Of course, people were glued to their radios before that. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, I mean, people have always been looking for these forms of communication. So I'm not, I'm not a Luddite about them, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, I really worry about phone bots and my wife particularly, and I agree with her, really worries about uh, phone behavior with kids, especially young kids, Uh, parentally and adult. I'm not inculcated, but, you know, adults are enabling this behavior, mm-hmm. giving kids phones when they're sitting at a re- family sitting at a restaurant and they throw the kid a, a phone to keep the yeah. kid. It's like you have a moment to bond as a family. You could be talking right. to each other. You could be telling stories. You could be joking and you throwing a phone at that kid in that moment. I'm not against the phone. I'm against the misuse of the phone. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. So, again, that's a problem. And yet there we go. There's the digital tech dilemma. My phone has allowed me unbelievable creativity, yep. efficiency, safety with my family, you know, all these things that it does that are, it's just unbelievable. So again, it's the freedom responsibility balance that we always have to yep. come back to. It's always, it's always yeah. the balance. Always the balance. Well, it has been wonderful talking to you. <laughs> I knew this was going to be super fun and I was not wrong. Me too. And I suspected that we would go long and and I wasn't wrong either. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, when you're talking to me, it goes long. <laughs> it's kind of a pub tendency I have, whatever. But it's been a great conversation and I'm so glad that you came and spent some time with me today. I really appreciate it. That is this week's show. Thanks so much to Tim Myers for joining me and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us how play influences your creative process. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, or if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, Join me at The Spark on Substack as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. It's free, and it's also where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners. The link is in your podcast app, so sign up today. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners.